If you have your Bible this morning, you can flip to the New Testament, and we are headed to the short book of 2 Thessalonians this morning, and chapter 1, 2 Thessalonians and chapter 1, and if you need a Bible, feel free to grab one back there at our welcome table, and feel free to keep it. It is a new year. Here we are, January 2nd. Quick survey, quick show of hands. How many of you actually chose to stay up till midnight? Hmm, 50-50? All right, all right. Um, New Year's and all the extravagance and the things that they show on TV and all the traditions are always fun. Um, I find that they become less interesting to me uh, year by year. But I do get to share my one and only and my favorite New Year's story. I only get to break it out of the box once a year. Um, When I was in college, I had a group of friends. I didn't go. Um, I I wasn't cool enough, I guess. But I had a group of college friends who went up to New York City to do the whole Times Square uh, New Year's experience. And so they all go up there and they're waiting around. And what they told told to me, maybe you've heard this, is it's just a miserable experience. Uh, waiting all day. You get there all day and you just stand shoulder to shoulder. There's nowhere to go to the bathroom. You just have to wait for the big moment, the big reveal. And so one of my friends in that group, and he will never live this down, uh, at whatever point, maybe it was due to delirium, waiting for the, the inevitable moment, but he looked at my other friends and he asked this question, what time does the ball drop? We will never let him forget about it. Um, we will never stop making fun of him. But New Year's is indeed a time for celebrating. Um, It is certainly a time for hoping. Uh, Lately, in the last few years, it has become a season of complaining about how awful the year previous was and some sort of a distant, vague hope that maybe the next year will be better, with this sense of probably not, though. Um, It is also, however, a time for the making of New Year's resolutions. Show of hands again. How many of you have made any New Year's resolutions this year? few hands. All right, all right. Uh, how many of you, by show of hands, have already broken your New Year's resolutions on January 2nd? Okay, all right. Um, which brings us to the inevitable question here this morning. Should we, in fact, make New Year's resolutions? And if the answer to that were yes, then we ought to ask the question, well, how should we, in fact, do that? Um, we do know that, that among all people, uh, there are basically two groups, the resolution setters and there are also the resolution haters. Um, The resolution setters would say to us this, you know, resolutions help me focus on the most important things in my life, or they're motivating for me in areas that I really need to address uh, in my life. And and I I find that when I commit, you know, in community with other people, that that shared accountability can kind of help motivate me. Uh, The resolution haters will say uh, things to this effect, they can be harmful, resolutions can be harmful because they're inevitably a step towards my eventual failure at what I am trying to do. And maybe at worst, they, they, they might say uh, that it can be a, a total misunderstanding, really, uh, of God's grace for us to somehow resolve that we're going to do better uh, or try harder. Um, what I would like to, for us to do here this January 2nd, 2022, is go to the Scripture and look at two very relevant verses in Second Thessalonians that I believe will speak to us about what God has to say about resolutions or about resolve in general. So let's look to 2 Thessalonians now. This is chapter 1, just verses 11 and 12 of chapter 1. Hear the word of the Lord. To this end, we always pray for you, that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him, 
according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that it is powerful, that it is true, that it is authoritative, Lord, and that it changes lives. And so, Father, would you open our ears and our hearts to receive your Word, that your Holy Spirit might lead us as we go to you this morning, and that you might teach us how to follow hard after you afresh this morning. We pray for your blessing over this year, and we ask that you might draw our hearts close to you in it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Three ways from this passage to resolve, not just this week, but three ways to resolve to follow Christ throughout 2022. The first is this, and we see this in the first half of verse 11 and at the end of verse 12. Number one, resolve by God's power and grace. Resolve by God's power and grace. So to return to the immediate question that I just posed to you, should we make resolutions, let me just say very clearly and briefly, if you intend to do resolutions, if you intend to do things better on your own by sheer willpower or with the distorted mindset that God helps those who help themselves, then you will most likely fail. That is not the foundation of anything good, but 1 Thessalonians shows us a better way. Uh, John Piper, in describing this, the, the message here of 1 Thessalonians, says this, The mystery of holiness is that we live our lives in the strength of another. The mystery of holiness is that we live our, our, our lives in the strength, not of ourselves, but of another. So if you have a desire to change bad habits or broken habits within your life, if you have a desire to serve your family differently or, or better this year, if you have a desire to see change in your life, if you have a desire to make resolutions, you ought to, but then the bigger question is how. When we go down the wrong road, we know that it will fail, so what is the right way? Uh, brothers and sisters, we do not want to be legalists in this. We want to be filled, as John Piper says, by the strength of another. Listen to 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10 on the topic. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. So Paul here is working hard. He is working hard at his sanctification of obeying God, knowing that he will fail, but he rightly credits God's grace for the success. Look again, Paul speaks to us in Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. Therefore, he says, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul here says that every believer needs to, by God's grace, get in the gym and work out. Not the literal gym, but sort of the spiritual gym. Not that you're earning God's salvation, and that is incredibly important for us to hear this morning. Not that you are earning God's salvation with every repetition, but that you understand that God's grace is actively, continually working in you, and that you are commanded by God to actively participate in his ongoing work of grace in your life. First Thessalonians chapter 2 says, 
God makes you worthy of His calling. What does worthy mean? Well, to, to be worthy is to be fitting or to be suitable. Notice that Paul here is praying, which is instructive of, of itself, but Paul is praying that God would do this, that God would do this work. See, he expects God to do it, and we ought to pray in the same way, and we ought to put our trust in God in the same way. Paul is not saying here that we in any way earn our salvation. We do not in any way deserve our salvation. We don't deserve anything from God. It is a free gift. We are not making ourselves worthy. Rather, what this passage is saying is as believers saved by God's grace alone, that I am invited to respond by living in a manner worthy of the calling that I have received from Him. The calling here that he is talking about is the effectual call of God by which our hearts were first changed by His Holy Spirit so that when we heard the gospel, we were even enabled to believe it by His grace. So we come back to this question, how do, we, how do I resolve then to be worthy of God's calling, to use the language of this passage? And the answer he gives in the very first verse, by His power. On May 18th, 1980, Mount St. Helens in Washington State erupted with what is to this day probably the most visible display of God's creation power that the modern world has ever seen. At 8.32 in the morning, the explosion ripped 1,300 feet off of the top of the mountain. With a force of 10 million tons of TNT, the equivalent of 500 atomic bombs. The 300-degree heat moved out at 200 miles per hour, destroying, eviscerating trees 17 miles away from the eruption. Guys, understand that, that God holds Mount St. Helens in His fingertip. This is the power of God. So when 1 Thessalonians says, our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith, it says it is by His power. Romans chapter 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Dane Ortland in the book, Gentle and Lowly, which is there in the back, which everyone is absolutely welcome to grab a free copy of. Uh, but in chapter 7, he says this, it is the most counterintuitive aspect of Christianity that we are declared righteous with God, not once we begin to get our act together, but once we collapse into honest acknowledgement that we never will. This is God's power on display. This is the power of justification, what God does for us, the first part of salvation, God's power of justification. That is, God, by His power, can destroy the problem of sin in the world and the problem of sin in every single human heart just as He has the power to make Mount St. Helens erupt. How does he do it? Well, Romans chapter 3 gives us a beautiful picture 
of that exact work of God's grace and justification. Romans chapter 3 says this, first the bad news, then the good news. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation or a payment by His blood to be received by faith. Verse 27, then what becomes of our boasting? What about me bragging about my abilities? What about what I contribute? It is excluded. It's all His grace. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So when we resolve it is by God's power and it is simultaneously by His grace, we've looked at the power and the grace of justification. Now consider for a moment the power and the grace of God's sanctification. See, the grace that saves us at justification is the grace that continues to change us day by day more and more into the image of Christ. That is the grace of sanctification. It's because newsflash, none of us are perfect this side of heaven, right? I stand before you not a perfected believer. I stand before you a sinner who has been saved by grace, who God is daily, lovingly working in my heart and life. I'm taking a, a quick ski trip later this week. I'm escaping the, uh, the frozen fjords of Palm Bay to go to a colder place um, up in New York. Now, if you've ever been skiing, you know that skiing goes a lot better when you ride the skis down the hill and allow gravity to do its substantial work in your life. Um, I promise you will never see somebody say, I don't really want to take the ski lift up the, the mountain today. I would rather put my skis on and hike up the snowy face of the mountain. Right? It will not work. I can promise you that. When we resolve to do better to break bad habits, to do sanctification, to do right living and righteousness without God, it is like a guy trying to scale the side of the snowy mountain with his skis on. It will not work. Uh, But now consider skiing done right, and it is a beautiful thing. You ski with gravity carrying you down the mountain, and consider that gravity the grace of sanctification in your life. However, any skier will tell you that skiing is not a passive experience. You must guide the skis. You must pay attention. You must be involved. You must use every muscle to make sure that you stay on the mountain. It's not a passive activity. So the grace of justification, understand, if we're to use math terms, the grace of justification is 100% God's work and 0% your work. You cannot save yourself, and you will not. The grace of sanctification is 100% God's work in your life, and yet He calls you to make it 100% your work as well with Him. See Romans chapter 12 for details. Romans chapter 12, 1 and 2 says this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not 
be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we resolve by God's power and by God's grace and the gift that it is to us. How do we connect that to ourselves? Number two, resolve through faith. First, we resolve by God's power and grace, and we do it through faith. We're told this in the second half of verse 11. Let's refresh. To this end, we always pray for you that our God may make you worthy of His calling and may fulfill every resolve for good and every work of faith by His power. God does not want His people to live our lives in such a way as to be irresolute, to be indecisive, to be unresolved. In the Old Testament, in 1 Kings 18, the prophet Elijah, maybe you remember this powerful scene, Elijah says to God's people, with the prophets of Baal surrounding him, but before God Almighty, Elijah says to God's people, most likely at the cost of his own life for speaking up, he says this, 1 Kings 18, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow Him. Choose you this day whom you will serve, says Joshua to the Old Testament people. God is saying to us here in His Word, get off the fence. And the invitation is follow Jesus. And so if you've never done so, Jesus invites you even this very moment to follow him into a new life of faith, a life that is entirely a free gift of his grace and power, one in which you must choose to stop trusting in the empty promises of self-effort, in the empty promises of whatever idol you may be chasing, and put your trust in him alone, and he will not fail you. Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians, may God fulfill every resolve that we make by His power. And we get connected into God's power by putting our faith in Him. So if you are a believer this morning, God is calling you afresh to once again put your faith in Jesus. Trust in Him where your hearts inevitably go, maybe I could do it my way or maybe I could do it the world's way. God says, no, 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 trust me, I love you follow me. And if you've never asked Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, then He is inviting you even today to give up. (laughs) Give up the endless self-improvement projects, the frustrations over your mistakes and failures, the shame that you hold over your past, and the self-righteous belief that you don't need God, and lay it down at the foot of the cross of Jesus. Lord Jesus, I confess that even on my best day, even when I muster up all of my resolve, I am still a sinner completely in need of your forgiveness of my sins. And so I'm laying down my self-effort and I'm putting my trust in you alone. Maybe the end of that prayer looks like this, Lord, just change me, rearrange me. That can be everyone's prayer this morning, change me, make me more and more into the man or the woman of God that you would have me to be by your grace and your power, and I will put my faith in you to do it. So as we think about New Year's and the resolutions that that we so often make, some of them wiser, some of them maybe not as much, consider with me 
what resolving through faith in Jesus might look like, not just New Year's, but every day of our lives. We make resolutions about diet or or working out or, or getting out of debt this year, spiritual disciplines, going to God and His Word and hearing from Him, praying and talking to God. Maybe it's more quality time with your spouse or more invested discipling of your children or maybe it's to do more in the way of giving and generosity or, or to be sharing the gospel with your words and with your life with others. Maybe God is challenging you about serving at our church, leading a, a city group, or, or serving with our kids or with our youth, or using your talents to help lead our church in, in worship. May I suggest to you in all of this that there's a couple of obvious categories that we ought to consider when we think about resolve. Uh, the first And the most important is you and your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the most important. And then to consider your family and your relationship to your family and how Christ ought to and needs to be at the center of that. Thirdly, your church, that we are a family, we are the body of Christ. How might God be calling you back into the family of Christ? And then fourthly, our world that the multitudes that you pass every single day need to hear the good news of salvation by grace through faith. You and Jesus, your family, your church, and your world. And I challenge you this week, if you have not already, it is not about a New Year's tradition. It is about you and the Lord Jesus. But I challenge you to ask Jesus where He would, by His grace and power, through your faith in Him, challenge you to make resolutions, to resolve, to follow after Him. I I want us to consider for a moment through the lens of another believer, uh, through a moment, a snapshot of the the life of Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Maybe you've heard of Jonathan Edwards. He is one of the most fascinating believers of the colonial area here in what would eventually be the United States. Uh, Jonathan Edwards was born in 1703. He was born to Christian parents. His father was a pastor. Both of his grandfathers were pastors there in the New England area. But he did not himself ask Jesus to be his personal Lord and Savior until 1721 at the age of 17. Consider what most 17-year-olds tend to think of as a good day. Um, For this man, for Jonathan, having experienced what he describes as a radical life change, what he describes as immediately uh, experiencing uh, a beauty in Christ that he had never seen or known before, he immediately wrote down a list of 21 resolutions. 17, brand new believer in the faith, wrote down 17 resolutions, I'm sorry, 21 resolutions. And he added to those for the remainder of his life uh, totaling 70 resolutions that he considered on a daily basis until his sudden death at 54 years of age. Now, humanly speaking, you may know that Jonathan Edwards is one of the men that God used most to spark and to ignite the first great awakening in the colonies. Thousands of people gave their lives to Christ, putting their faith and hope in Jesus. It was not about this man. It was about God and His grace, but God certainly used Jonathan Edwards in that way. But it was not all champagne and balloons. Uh, In 1750, he was voted out of his congregation that he had pastored for 23 years because he rightly would not allow those who had not professed saving faith in Jesus to participate in communion. He was kicked out of his church. 
In January 1758, he was called to be, become the next president of Princeton Seminary, only to die of a bad inoculation against smallpox two months later. His wife and his daughter both died of smallpox that same year. Jonathan Edwards, with the time that God gifted him, wrote these resolutions. Listen to his opening statement. I put these on the screen behind me as well to take these in. This is his opening statement. Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then under that, he wrote, remember to read over these resolutions once a week. On the topic of his life mission, resolve number 22 was this, resolved to endeavor to obtain for myself as much happiness in the other world as I possibly can. Heaven, in case you didn't catch that. Regarding time management, number 17, resolved, he's 17 years old when he writes this, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. In other words, the day that I die and I look back on what I have done or have not done, that I might have that level of resolve and commitment now. Concerning relationships, number 36, resolved never to speak evil of any except I have some particular good call for it. That would change our country. Just that one right there. Regarding his spiritual life, number 25, resolved to examine carefully and constantly what that one thing in me is which causes me in the least to doubt of the love of God and to direct all my forces against it. What is it in me, Jesus, that causes me to doubt your love? Help me to, to root that out and be rid of it. On the topic of God's word and prayer, number 29, resolve never to count that a prayer, nor to let that pass as a prayer, nor that as a petition of a prayer, which is so made that I cannot hope that God will answer it, nor that as a confession, which I cannot hope God will accept. In other words, don't let me pray, Lord, unless I am praying in a way that I trust you. Renew and fulfill my faith and trust in you when I pray. In his relationship with God, again, number 42, resolved frequently to renew the dedication of myself to God, which was made at my baptism, which I solemnly renewed when I was received into the communion of the church, in which I have solemnly remade this 12th day of January, 1722, and then again in 23. Last one, number 65, Resolved very much to exercise myself in this all my life long with the greatest openness I am capable of to declare my ways to God and lay open my soul to Him. All my sins, temptations, difficulties, sorrows, fears, hopes, desires, and everything and every circumstance. The Bible says resolve by God's power and grace through faith. Third and finally, from 2 Thessalonians this morning, resolve for Jesus' glory. Resolve for Jesus' glory. And verse 12 makes this abundantly clear and even kind of ties a bow on it and helps us expand our view of the glory that is due Jesus. He says, so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in Him. The first question here ought to be this then, is, is your resolve ultimately 
to bring glory to Jesus or to you? What does the world say? There is only one poem on the planet that I like, but I like this one a lot. I'm going to read it to you. This is by Percy Bysshe Shelley. It's called Ozymandias, if you've ever heard it before. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert. Near them, on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage lies, whose frown and wrinkled lip lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things. The hand that mocked them and the heart that fed. And on the pedestal, these words appear. My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck. Boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. The poet wrote this brief poem about the historical figure Pharaoh Ramses II, who built a statue of himself 57 feet tall to declare his own glory. And now, as the modern walker finds it, he finds little to nothing remaining of that statue, just this little plaque and an empty threat declaring his glory that is gone. Nobody knows who Ozymandias is anymore. The famous preacher C.T. Studd puts it this way, only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. One of my favorite songs uh, is a King's Kaleidoscope song. They wrote the song uh, entitled, All Glory Be to Christ, and they did it using the tune of Auld Lang Syne. We sing that every New Year's, whether we like it or not. But they gave it this new and, and far more profound tune. The final verse is this, when on the day, the, the great I am, the faithful and the true, the lamb who was for sinners slain is making all things new. Behold, our God shall live with us and be our steadfast light, and we shall ere his people be, all glory be to Christ. All glory be to Christ, our King, all glory be to Christ, his rule and reign will ever sing, all glory be to Christ. God promises us that Christ will be glorified. And not only will His name be glorified, but also you and me in Him. Romans 8.17 says that we are co-heirs with the King in His glory, that we are together with Christ and that we inherit the whole glory of God. You see what the promise is there? Not just that Christ will be glorified, but that we will be with him and experience and enjoy it as well. Revelation 3.21 says we will sit with Jesus on his throne. This is not a small promise. 2 Corinthians 3.18, that by his grace and power, he will transform us more and more into the glorious image of Christ, our Savior. According to, it says, the free grace of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son. That is, that that moves God. His grace moves Him to show His power. That through our faith in that power, God fulfills our resolves for good and works of faith. 
so that Christ will be glorified and that we will be glorified with him and in him, not by our effort, but entirely by his power, his grace, and we trust him through faith. Amen? Let's go to King Jesus in prayer together now.